question to Bernie. What is neural Darwinism or neuronal group selection all about? You ask the simple ones. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The simple ones for you. Uh, well, thank you. Um, so my version of this, and David will have his own, and Jeff will have his own, and so on. My understanding of neural Darwinism is that it's a specific instance uh, of selectionism, and selectionism is a pervasive pattern of living nature. Uh, so, and and it occurs selectionism occurs not just over evolutionary eons, but also at much smaller scales and in terms of multiple systems in the body, the brain, the soci uh, <coughs> social group, uh, and uh, the demands of hunting and surviving and, and foraging and all those kinds of things. And all those things you can fail at, uh, in, including failing to, uh, uh, for your immune system, to fail to respond to, to an invader. Uh, and that's a very painful failure, and, and so failure is very much part of Darwinism. Um, and, and neural Darwinism is a very fascinating proposal uh, by Gerald, uh, and I guess we're calling him Gerald. Uh, sometimes we call him GME because I never felt comfortable uh, calling him uh, Jerry. Uh, um, that was a sort of selection to do that too. <laughs> and uh, so, so this this actually appeared in 1978, quite early on, uh, in a very interesting way. Uh, and if I understand Gerald's development, at least to some extent, uh, it is this insight that he wasn't supposed to have uh, that that the response of the immune system to unknown and unanticipated invaders is a kind of creative response. Uh, it is not a, a simple repertoire, it is an exploding repertoire uh, as necessary, right? Because once the immune system swamps the invader and, and it goes out through the lymph nodes or whatever, and perhaps you'll have some immunity for the next version of that particular invader. And that was the insight that got him the Nobel Prize, because he identified the, the proteins involved, and particularly the, the matching, let's call them defensive proteins for the body, uh, and invading proteins for the body. And that matching process is not a lock and key thing, which is a very common metaphor, and it's not entirely wrong, but it is, it's an adapting repertoire. And that was, I think, the stunning insight that got him into all kinds of trouble, uh, but fortunately also got him the Nobel Prize. So, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt Bernie, no. but there's, there's sort of a seminal, there's literally a moment, and I, I, I know the moment because I actually witnessed the moment in 1977 when this was a sort of a germinal idea. It was written, I think, on a, on a, on a napkin a cocktail napkin in the airport in Milan or something, as far as I understood it. But it really germinated in, a, in Boulder, Colorado, at the annual meeting of the Neurosciences Research Program, which used to be sort of this big event that brought together all kinds of different scientists. And in, the, in that time, from 1966 to 1977, but particularly in 1966, 
the word neuroscience, the term neuroscience wasn't in common parlance. People really weren't talking about it that way. So through, I guess, the organizational genius of a guy named Frank Schmidt and another guy named Fred Worden, they started convening these regular meetings in Boulder, Colorado. And the idea was, let's bring people from totally diverse fields, biology, even some chemists here and there, but let's bring these diverse fields together and let's talk about the brain. Let's try to figure out, let's try to make progress. And so at this particular meeting in 1977, my dad started talking to a guy named Vernon Mountcastle, who's no longer with us. Mm. Vernon was really famous for sort of pushing the organization of the cerebral cortex, which, which figures, as Bernie can attest, yeah. into conscious processing in the human brain and the mammalian brain. And mm. Vernon and, and my father started talking, and they had very fruitful conversations. My dad sort of started to build upon this through that conversation and, many, and a variety of others. And then eventually published in 1978, but the backstory to that publication mm. was after the meeting was over, probably within a month or two, probably even earlier, my father got a phone call from Frank Schmidt, the co-organizer of the NRP, and, and the chair of the NRP, and, and, and Frank said, so Jerry, when are you writing the book? And my father said, what book? What are you talking about? Oh, the book that you're gonna co-author as a series of, as a couple of monographs with, uh, with uh, Vernon Mountcastle. Oh, well, that's news to me. <laughs> but in any case, I guess the identical call or a similar call was made to uh, Vernon Mountcastle. So the very first book called The Mindful Brain was published, but really through sort of the pushing, amongst other things, by this guy, Frank Schmidt. And Frank, in a certain sense, was very insightful about this. He saw, he knew a good idea when he saw it. And I've more or less read that book, or at least I tried to tackle that book. And the Mountcastle chapter is very fundamental. I think it's read very, very widely. Um, and the Edelman chapter is very, 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 very fundamental. And for a while, I don't think it was read nearly as widely as one might expect. Uh, and that was because this weird idea uh, which, you know, it seemed to be, uh, uh, I think, a, a kind of a metaphorical uh, ac uh, uh, application of Darwinian theory. Uh, and Darwinian theory seems like a very simple rule of thumb that's just being repeated over and over and over again. And is that, in a sense, but the result of it is our species that are not really Aristotelian classes of animals. Uh, species are very poorly defined, uh, and the reason is that there's so much variation. Uh, so, if you've been tracking the, the human evolution story, uh, and, and the finding, for example, that, uh, uh, that uh, Neanderthals uh, apparently uh, were impregnated or impregnated uh, hominins of our kind, um, What's happening is that the edges are beginning to fray. Uh, and we're not no longer sure, and <coughs> David is a pro on this, uh, where the species starts and ends. And this is not an unusual thing. This is the norm. And, and so what we don't, we don't really have uh, clean categories of the standard mathematician type, right, where you define the number series or something like that. And you start with that definition, very, very simple, and it has 
fantastic implications when you study it carefully. It is not an Aristotelian view in that sense. It is a dynamic view, it's an ever-changing view. The species keep changing, uh, and it's never quite clear uh, uh, where you are. Uh, it's not a precise problem, it's kind of a distribution uh, of differences. Just to follow up on what Bernie said, it's sort of a metaphor, but it's kind of more than a metaphor, because what we're talking about are some very fundamental principles um, that are in play. And some very famous evolutionary biologists had argu literal arguments with my father. They're perfect. Had arguments with my father about this invocation of Darwinism vis-a-vis -vis the brain. And they said, Jerry, this is ridiculous. It's not Darwinism because, you know, when you have Darwinism, when you're talking about Darwinian evolution, you're talking about uh, a species of very sort of variant animals, all kinds of different shapes and sizes, but we recognize it as a sort of a species, but each individual is an individual, they're different. Something happens in the world that changes. It's a very diverse species, there's different varieties. Some of them survive that change because they happen to have a certain body type or they're less sensitive to temperature changes, but many others die. And as a result, the species gets shaped over time. And, but, but a prominent feature of that whole process is what's called differential reproduction. The notion that you're amplifying a signal. The signal in this case is an individual who's passing along his, or he or she are passing along his or her genes. And essentially, not a replica, but descendants are left. And the descendants have a similarity to the parents. They have many of those features that allow for the survival. They persist. And they would say to my father, Jerry, there's no such thing as differential reproduction in the brain. And my father would answer and say, you don't understand. Just think of it as differential amplification of a signal. So in this case, replace reproduction with the notion that a particular, uh, a particular fit between, a, say, a group of neurons that are firing away, they're in communication with one another, and they look a certain way, they have a certain configuration, and they're recognizable as a firing group. They fire together when, when an object is seen or heard or smelled, etc. Okay, And just imagine, when that gets reinforced, just imagine, in a sense, the signal getting spread, getting stronger, and in fact, maybe even spreading. And there being sort of a wider, a wider sort of amplification of the signal. So my father would say, look, it's sort of, it's very, very similar. It's slightly more than a metaphor because we are talking about essentially signal amplification. The difference is it's through reproduction if you're talking about organisms. And it's through this real amplification of some fit between an internal neuronal state in the world, and that's getting strengthened, and it's even growing and persisting across the brain. Uh, okay, so let's go on to this. So just, just to start with this slide, that's a famous Rousseau, Rousseau painting, of course, and one of the things that my father invaded against, and, and you heard it in, in the little video, is the notion of a, a computational, or not computational, but a machine view of nervous systems, of complex nervous systems. This notion that there's a one-to-one -one fit between the world and what's inside. And moreover, and this is not necessarily a popular view anymore today, thankfully, but the notion that there's some sort of a static representation sitting resonant in your brain, waiting to be called up again in, in recall. You know, but it's static. It's just sort of sitting there, right? But that's not quite what it is. It's, it's dynamic because the groups that represent the world that come up with us is dynamic, they're always changing. Some of the neurons literally die. Some of the connections get weakened on the, on the edges. By and large, you can recognize it if you look at the neurons firing. You say, oh, 
that group is kind of like the previous instantiation. It is essentially the same group, even though the configuration is changing slightly over time. Okay, that view of the nervous system. Can I uh, interrupt for one sec? So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> what what he's talking also about the computer was was a pushback against AI at the time. Exactly. Because because right. the thought that intelligence was computation. We went back right. to Turing, and, right. and what he was trying to show was, was that it actually intelligence is much different. It's noisy, it's complex, it's noisy. and it's, it's um, like you said, not static, it's plastic. It's dynamic. It's con uh, constantly it's changing due to experience, yeah. yeah the, exactly. The, the, the quote, the, the brain is not a computer, it's a jungle. Yeah, that was, <laughs> yes. that was drilled into me over and over again for and that is, 10 years. That is, yeah. It's more like a rainforest yeah. than it is a computer. If you think about the rainforest, and in a sense, I mean, I always invoke this when I talk to students about um, sort of envisioning evolution, the biology behind evolution, and I say, look, um, rainforests, in a sense, they sort of have memory. Because over time, you know, certain elements are selected for and reinforced, and certain others more or less disappear. And if you're a human and you can sort of observe this over linear time, if you could literally, you know, do this thought experiment, you'd say, wow, well, it's changed, and I see the changes, but I still recognize it as this kind of a rainforest, and it has this kind of canopy, and it's still distinctively this rainforest. So there's a kind of an identity that's maintained, and it's sort of similar to the view, not just of a population or a complex eco-niche like a rainforest, but the species view that, that Darwin you know, perpetrated on us. It, it, it's, it's essentially the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think slightly richer, I think, than a metaphor. Let's go on to the next slide. And I want for you all to please jump in, as, as Jeff just did, to, okay. to bring up something as it comes up for you. Absolutely. Um, please. Okay, so here's the mammalian brain, or in this case it's the human brain, and it's, according to many people from, you know, from a, a variety of early anatomists on for hundreds or even thousands of years, you know, some people have suspected it's the seat of something. In this case, we're talking about the big C as in consciousness, so for the seat of consciousness. Um, and it is, you know, a collection, you know, if you look at it, if you're a functional anatomist or you're a guy who specializes in, say, functional magnetic resonance imaging, you're doing imaging of behaving brains, you come to recognize certain, certain aspects of brain function which correlate specifically with certain kinds of experience. In that sense, we, we, we can study activity in relation to specific events in the world and we can kind of start at least under, we're very, at a very primitive state, by the way. As, as sophisticated as imaging is, it's still kind of stone knives and bear skins in the sense that we see aerial activation, areas of the brain glowing with activity when certain things happen in the world. And that's a correlate because it's always distinctively looking like that when, say, you see a cat. So that kind of maps to this dynamic representation with some differences. But, um, you know, so that's a, those are correlates, but we're sort of stuck because of the limits of how we can observe this, this perhaps most complex, you know, behaving object in, in, in the world, or perhaps even the universe. That was kind of an offshoot of the, the neural Darwinism theory was, and it came out of the Neuroscience Institute, um, but Olaf Sporns really pushed it, was, was because they're in these neuronal groups, and people thought of the brain as being specialist, but they really showed the interconnectivity between all these different regions. And, and that's right. Sporns launched 
from the Neuroscience Institute, a whole field of theoretical neuroanatomy, which, right. and the connectome came out of, yeah. really came out of the Neuroscience Institute because they found hubs and other areas that were very intricately connected, and no two neurons were far apart. It's a small world network. Right. So, so these maps are very- What is the very, connectome? What is the connectome? Well, the connectome's many different things, but it's trying to get the wiring diagram of, of a brain. Right. So there's the human connectome, which is using uh, a form of magnetic imaging to look at the connections. Mm -hmm. And then there's, there's connectomes of uh, insects where they can actually do much finer grain and mm -hmm. connectomes of uh, the retina because they can pull it out and actually look at it. But it's right. trying to figure out the wiring diagram. Right. Right. And, yeah. and seemingly paradoxically, you know, it's really it's sort of a it's sort of a, 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 a methodological paradox for us as neuroscientists. You can actually put literally a glass plate in the skull of a rat and observe the firing of neurons. You can use what's called calcium imaging. You can use a variety of techniques. You can actually see the individual patterns of traffic ways and the patterns of traffic across little groups of neurons, but little tiny groups of neurons. And what Olaf and other people who followed really contributed was, well, that's all well and good, but that's kind of the local neighborhood. And what Olaf said is what. How do all the long distance pathways work? Like, How maybe like that? Maybe like that. That is definitely. Yes. Hard That's to see. great. Thank you. So, yeah. Yeah, and they really took um, information theory and, and network theory to the brain, which. And maybe like this? Like that. That's one of the pictures they have. <laughs> and can you explain that subtle distinction between. Because also another group, the out of Bell Labs and, and the, the whole group of Sebastian Song and Rafa mm -hmm. Usta, they were condensed matter physicists who were using Hopfield's ideas of networks, which are subtly different than. Olaf Sporn's networks. And can you explain that distinction? Well, they were taking some of the tools that they were that those people you were talking about, like Sung and others, were, were using, mm. but they were applying it to brain maps. So the data was coming out that you could add, add all these uh, brain areas and you could have like some idea of the connections, but no one really analyzed it. So they analyzed it like you would analyze the internet, the you know, right. or, or any other network, social mm -hmm. networks, and they found these fascinating parallels to large-scale networks. And, and yeah. much of it, in terms of what Sebastian Sung did, is structure. It's literally really dealing with structure. But the problem is you always have to reckon with function. And you know, so you can see the highways, the superhighways, the long-distance connections. And Sebastian Sung has contributed greatly to this through his methodology, which is astonishing. Um, but you can't really see. It's a static. It's like a snapshot. You're, you're capturing the brain at a certain instant, but you're really not seeing the constant play of traffic and the distinctive signaling patterns that do arise. And that's a, a certain... And that's where we're getting into the global so, workspace theory. We're not yet going to get to that. Oh, so we're going to talk about that. <laughs> There's only one thing uh, right now that is worth saying. Uh, I believe that the most recent estimate on the number of connections in the brain is now a quarter of a quadrillion connections. Wow. So that's so a biggie. So to borrow my dad's favorite trotted out statistic, it's not even a statistic, it's kind of a little, a little story, but a narrative about how many connections there are. Um, if you wanted to count the number of connections, this is something that Dad loved to talk about. If you wanted to count the number of connections and arrive at a final figure, um, you counted one per sec, if you counted one per second, you would finish counting 32 million years later. <laughs> but, but I know something that has more connections than that. Ah, okay. <laughs> what is that? A baby's brain. That's right. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yes. How many of you all have babies? Does anybody have a baby in the room? Thank God, not anymore. Oh, okay. Is anybody a baby? But I mean, I think even like getting, you know, getting there in the first place, that neural Darwinism is, is the essence of it. Right? And the way I see it is about you know, starting with, you know, one cell divides and, and uh, you know, grow, grows that way. But the whole uh, key for me is that you only need two things. You need overproduction, and you need selective or competitive elimination and time. Right. right. And that's the engine of evolution. Competitive elimination. Yeah, some non-random um, right. uh, selection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not only how the brain becomes complex, it's how everything in nature mm -hmm. becomes complex. I can't think of a single counterexample. Overproduce and selectively eliminate. Perfect. All you need. You don't need any other, you know, assumptions and stuff like. We're not you know, talking about babies. No, okay. Yeah, that's why I think evolution is so embedded. It's it's right. not even a bio. It's a statistical phenomenon. Right. But this is how the brain works in terms of, of each um, neuron. You pretty much have relatively the same amount from from birth beyond, but they have these connections and uh, somewhere between six and twenty thousand right. of sending out the, these these connections. Mm -hmm. And then it's um, a brutal fight in terms of the connections that connect and lead to happiness and safety and good things. They, they survive and they stick around. The others, they're not silenced, they're gone. They're physically eliminated. And this is a constant battle for... So the, yeah, the, So one neuron reaching out, you know, connecting to another. So, I mean, that's where the magic is, right? One neuron is not conscious, I would say, but a collection of them are. That's the magic. This is how it works. This is how the brain becomes the brain. So, in general, they're always um, sending out uh, you know, more connections, and some make it and some don't, right. um, to the law of the jungle. But in general, childhood, you're getting more and more connections. And the peak is somewhere around 12, 13, and then the balance shifts, and you actually have less connections um, in terms of as the brain becomes specialized, completely dependent upon what we do with it. That there may be more dense. Yeah, a lot of, like we, all these books around us, a lot of people actually spend some of the, you know, brain time reading, right? Reading is only 5,000 years old, right? Most humans have never read a single word. It didn't exist for most humanity. Mm -hmm. But we pulled it off, and now, we, you know, we spend a lot of our time doing stuff that the brain wasn't, quote, just like the immune system can attack invaders that exactly. you know, had... That didn't exist at the time that DNA was there. But this is like, this is really common across all. This is absolutely every almost. I mean, every biological system I can think of is based on this very idea. Often people would talk about evolution as a great death machine, and the reason is that you know 99% yeah. plus of everything that's ever lived on this planet is dead. And 99% of synapses. And 99% And the bottom line is, you know, not just the brain pulling back and just like observing an embryo, developing human being or developing animal in the womb, many, many, many more cells. That, that actually is a, is a, is a pruning process a as well. There, it's a jungle out there. Yeah. And there's selectional events that are occurring there that shape an embryo. You start with overproduction, as you said, and there are critical processes, including cell death, yeah. cell migration, and cells becoming particular types. Cell migration, would you explain that very simply? For yeah, us? yeah, the idea that cells actually can move. You know, if you're talking about a developing brain, when you, when you look at a brain just before, I don't remember how many days in a, in a mouse, it's 18, 21 days is gestation, I guess. I don't know, is it 14 days when the cortex Exactly, yeah. yeah. Around 14, 10, 14 days. If you look, if you're able to look, you would see these neurites, these 
sort of primordial neurons. These yeah, you can literally see them. You yeah. can literally see yeah. them. Yeah. These precursor neurons, and they're radiating upward and outward into what later become the cortical mantle. But they're moving to do that. So they have to move. They have to die. Some of them die along the way. Some of them die once they're connected, mm -hmm. and they get physically selected for a few. And I, I just wanted to put that up real briefly, but the heavy and synapse idea is really important. We won't dwell on it today, but some of you guys may have already glanced at that slide. Let's, let's move it to the next slide. And well, so the Darwinian view, we can keep on going. Let's get past Chuck. Sorry, Chuck. I thought I saw him in the other room earlier. Right. So this is kind of a synopsis of this notion, at least in terms of brain development, of what's going on, brain development and brain adaptation through life. So there are two aspects of selection that are, um, that are kind of the, com the main components of neural Darwinism. The first aspect is the developmental selection part. And that's what's happening during the development of an embryo and even very, very early post, you know, postnatal very early postnatal. Yeah. But what's happening is physically certain cells and certain connections are being selected for and others aren't. And the ones that aren't are literally dying or the, they're being pruned, they're somehow disappearing. So there's actually a physical selection going on that picks out the cells that make it and the other ones fall by the wayside through some certain sort of environmental circumstance. The baby's born, eventually the baby starts to experience the world, the baby's eyes open up. The baby, uh, you know, experiences the world and experience starts doing the selection. Only this time, it's not really so much the selection. So it's not mere, it's not really the case of the experience killer. Cells aren't dying as a result of the experience per se, even though do cells do die throughout your life. Some brain cells do die. Mostly what's happening is the patterns of the traffic are changing. So certain traffic patterns are selected over others. So certain synapses are strengthened. The things that connect the cells get strengthened. The syn synapses, synapses, the, the thing that connects the, the cells. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. And the likelihood, the likelihood that a signal will pass across that synapse from one neuron to the next increases with, ex with continued experience of a particular thing in the world. The more you see it and experience it, the baby, for the first time in its life, smelling the hot chocolate melting off of a chocolate chip cookie coming out of the oven, and at the same time, the baby hears mom's voice say, cookie, cookie, and then he looks over and she's waving this weird brown object, and there's this amazing pungent smell coming out of that object, but she comes over and she's still saying, cookie, cookie, and the baby gets her, his, his, her first taste, and all of these things are coming together. And initially when they come together, there's no good reason that those sensory, you know, the, that sensory input, which is coming from different channels, the vision, the hearing, the smell, the touch, the taste, there's no good reason that that should be causally related if the baby's never experienced it before. But those things happen to be converging on the brain at the same time, and neuron, certain neurons are going to start firing, and they will fire together, and then the synapses strengthen, and they wire together. And in that way, certain traffic patterns and traffic ways are selected for over others. So that's the other part of selection in neural Darwinism. And the final bit, which really relates to consciousness, is the last bit, no, 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 don't change it, it's the last part of the slide, is, re is you're just keeping me on my toes, is, is re-entry. So this is the sort of a notion that fits in with what I just talked about, the baby seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting the cookie for the first time. And eventually tasting it and hearing his mom's voice say cookie many times. And over time, 
there's a kind of a higher order mapping that's going on because not only are the individual areas that say represent taste, or represent vision, represent hearing, auditory, cookie, not only are they, they firing simultaneously, but higher order maps start being made by the fact that the connections between these different areas get, connect, get, get strengthened. And therefore, the likelihood that the next time the baby encounters a cookie, the likelihood that these things are going to fire together increases. And they, wi they literally wire together in that sense. You can see it under a microscope. You can actually you can see, see, the, see it under It's not a theory. You can see that. You, know, you can see the synapses tightening. You can literally see them coming closer together. And you can see the cadherins binding them more closely. All this stuff is actually physically happening. That's reentry. So in a way, now, not only do you have basic maps of certain senses, you have maps that are almost temporal maps. They're based on the timing. These things are coming in together. And as soon as one of these things drops off, let's say the baby no longer hears mom saying cookie, but the baby sees a cookie. But in his mind, he may hear cookie. Because that group of neurons now is going to fire along with the others because the, the, the chances, that the, the connections have been, you know, the strength of connections has increased, the likelihood that that's going to fire with the other components, even though that part of the brain, the, 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 the auditory part, isn't being directly jazzed by mom saying cookie. That's, that's a kind of an interesting idea, and it relates to memory, but... It also relates fundamentally to the contents of consciousness and how we construct yeah, exactly. the world. Uh, so my question to you is, when you say the word experience, are you referring to conscious experience? Doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Doesn't, no, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be. No. And so tell me, uh, uh, what is the difference, do you think, based on your theoretical work, uh, between those two conditions, because there are, after all, there's a lot of information processing mm -hmm. going on uh, that is not conscious, and there's yeah. a ton of information pro processing going on that is conscious. And what's the difference? Um, well, I think of it from textbook memory kind of point of view. So, if it's declarative memory, then you can bring it to conscious memory and explain how you got that memory. Well, what about sensory memory? Well, there's a lot of priming and things that you're not conscious of, but there's obviously neurons firing together and wiring together mm -hmm. because skills are getting better, even though you can't explain why. So the person was not conscious of it. But there's, so, there's a, so your yeah. claim is kind of the skeptical claim yes. uh, <laughs> about the involvement of consciousness in, in memory and all that kind of stuff. And my claim is the opposite. And the way to deal with, you know, intellectual disagreement is to talk about them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not to duke it out. <laughs> All right, we'll, 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 we'll duke it out. Let's go at it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so, but I, I'm just dropping this theme or meme or whatever it is. A meme. Uh, a meme. Okay. A theme and meme. Uh, okay. And we'll come back to it and. Uh, you and I will fist the cuffs, right? There's, a, there's an extension of the Hebbians, you know, fire together, wire together, and that's fire together, wire together, grow together. Say yeah. that again. And, and we can, uh, they grow together. And so the, you those, say the three things that... Uh, yeah, fire together, wire together, grow, grow together, together, which we can actually measure and map now. Mm -hmm. And the degree to which they grow together predicts psychopathology, predicts verbal IQ. 
now that we can make things in autism and stuff. So it's sort of a new way of looking at the brain imaging is um, you know, looking at how groups of things grow together. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a more recent sort of notion. Um, but, and the fact that it relates to performance, um, for better and worse performance and illnesses, I think is, is intriguing. Yeah. But yeah. we can separate out with imaging sort of uh, conscious memories from unconscious and emotionally laden memories from, from not. They're distinct sim um, systems. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and yeah. the latter rely more on the, de the late, later development of the prefrontal cortex. So you get, you know, get better. Well, that's a, some oh, I smells you can remember from when you're two. And, well, if you had like primary you know. visual cortex and, and learning orientated lines, right? Line orientation. That's columns. not primary. That's. Well, uh, like simple D, cells in D1, right? Do you think uh, you need conscious, percep conscious perceptual, perceptual awareness to actually Well, the current best story, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's going to remain the current best story. Uh, the current best story is that <coughs> visual information following Dahan and Shangzhou, uh, that visual information becomes conscious somewhere around IT or MTL. Right. Uh, and then the big debate is whether that's the story or whether it has to go to prefrontal cortex. And my tentative guess is that it's both uh, because there's the semantics mm -hmm. of the visual world, of course, and semantics usually involves asso association cortex rather than the direct sensory input system. How do we bridge the gap or we think of as the gap between the gray matter that Bernie is describing and actually sharing with you so, so beautifully, and uh, material, and conscious thought, the immaterial. And so, how, so, do we, how does one seemingly lead to the other? And I I'm, wondered if I could, um, yes. I'm going to raise an objection. Yes, you're going to raise an objection. <laughs> to use those words, material and immaterial, mm -hmm. uh, is already caging the problem. Ah, OK, great. Okay? Uh, and in science, uh, whenever we cage problems, we run into big, big trouble. Okay. And eventually find out and have to back off. So would things. we then reorient uh, the question to being uh, conscious and unconscious? That's certainly fine, uh, because that's so close to the data, right? Okay. Uh, we can tell. Excellent. Thank you. So we'd be bridging the gap. So would it be possible for you, for you to have sure, a I mean, here? Yeah, so here, let's all do an exercise uh, where we have to think and in, in, in action instead of talking about it, right? So, so and what's inspiring this is um, when, when I talked to Dr. Edelman about repertoire, to go way back to what Jay was saying about repertoire and selective pressure, when, when I brought that up to him, one thing he really stressed, which was kind of said but kind of dropped, is the non-random relationship between repertoire and the selective pressure, right? So they're already connected before the process starts happening, or else the, the, process, ain't, the process ain't gonna happen, right? So they're, and, and so let's try it in action though. So I'll give you a tough action to accomplish. I'll stand up so you can see it. So just take your hands and do this. Go forward, right? So the hypnotist in the room will know this is also a pre-induction, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> and then also now go in back in re reverse, okay? And this is a little mind exercise for Martin Gardner, believe it or not. Because now what you do is just go in both directions at the same time. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> right? 
Exactly. So now we get a bunch of creative movements. That's very. <laughs> but you can already see now we're in this different world. When we're in action and also we're in a social context, so I plan to do it on purpose to say to add the social pressure, right? So we're in a different world when we're not talking and we're acting, right? And you can feel yourself trying to get to that. I can tell you how to select for that relatively quickly over the next two days. What you do is you start here, think top, and then make one hand go forward and one hand back in two semicircles, and meet at the bottom and think bottom, and now think top, and now think bottom, and then top, and then you build the action. So this idea that also you'll hear cognitive psychologists say that you can't you know, multitask, that's not the way we build complex actions. We all multitask and we all know it. You know? And so, okay, so, you know, top, and do you feel that? So if you practice that, you'll be able to get your friends with it too. But also, it shows you how differently we are when we act, how it becomes active and real. We're in a very different place than when we talk about it. And selected in actions is, is actually a really way, it's, I was thinking that you can also think about yourself, you know, choice versus selection, to go back to those big categories. Think about at the beginning of the year when you make a New Year's resolution, you know? That's, you know you're in a choice model, right? And then by the end of the year, you know what you've really done, you know, and all the shame comes in. That's the actuality. And some of the choices you've made are conscious, some are unconscious, but it's all part of your conscious reality. So because the problem is you can really slip when you start saying conscious, it can slip into intentionality, right? And, and you know, you, you can do something unintentionally and it's still conscious. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah. 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 Okay. Anybody want to jump in there with Mark? <laughs> the, really with the behavior or well um well, I am on the spot uh, <laughs> so one of the ideas and that, that's how I got involved with the neuroscience institute was uh and it led to robotics robotics but it was the brain is embodied the body's embedded in the environment and it really speaks to like there's there's no brain without a, having behavior and action like you were just showing lots of action but that's that's what it's all about for organisms and us is action and our actions are in the world and our actions are causing a reaction or some change in the world and then we're working with that and actually we we, we leverage that to our advantage so i think that's a big part of it. when you're talking material immaterial i wasn't sure how i was going to answer that but that, that was a big part of the way edelman wanted to show his theory to show that you have to see behavior somehow in, in, in the, uh, in not just a brain that's isolated in a vacuum, or a brain, as you used to call a brain in a vat, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Sort of a final thing that we have to consider is, let's say we understand, we come to understand consciousness. We come to understand a lot, or as much as we can possibly. We understand the mechanism. The nature of consciousness. Well, yeah, we understand the play of the neuron, right. and we somehow can relate this to the conscious process in a rich way. What are the implications? And let's bring it back to Jeff in the sense that, you know, one of the things that you, you'll know more about this, of course, than I do, one of the things that I suspect is missing or at least not is sort of sparse in the literature is the notion of projecting a machine model that is a, in effect goes through a sort of a child, an extended mm -hmm. childhood, not just simply these moments where you're, yeah. you're, mm -hmm. you know, exposing the machine to an environment and helping it to learn, but over a long period of time, extend the framework, the temporal framework, and literally talk about the, the, the machine's maybe phenotype, the form of the machine, perhaps changing over time, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and I don't know what is there, but it's Yeah, well, there's like a few things. You know who started this was Alan Turing, was, mm. was the one uh, 
Turing machine and also the imitation game. Um, he was the one that actually said that why, if I want to make something intelligent, why not make like a baby and then teach it? So, so mm -hmm. you could start right. simple. So I was amazed. I reread that. But that was in like the 50s he wrote yeah, that. And there was a, a robotics field that I'm sort of on the fringe of called uh, developmental robotics. They actually look at this. And constructionism. Right? They yeah, they, they look mm -hmm. at they, they actually try and teach the, the system to get better over time. And um, But one thing that you touched on that they can't do, which is really hard, which all organisms seem to do is they go from very small to very large. large. Their body changes a lot and then somehow they fluidly adapt to that. That's a really hard engineering problem mm. at this point. But, but there is an active field to actually think, well, if we want to make something smart, start out dumb, but then teach you what it needs to know through imitation, through teaching, coaching. So there's a lot of work on that. Yeah. Would I do help what you do? Could you sort of understand the stages that a baby goes through? First this, then that. So like, you know, different ages, but first you, you know, um, crawl, then you walk, then you run. The sequence is often the same. Would that help guide your research and development to sort of say, okay, well, now we have embodiment. Okay, what's mm -hmm. the next step beyond? You know, would that sort of guide your um, your research direction, or not not so much? Um, maybe not mine particular, but my field. Yeah, that mm -hmm. would that would definitely guide it. Um, and one one of the things David was talking about was called lifelong learning. So right now, the the state of the art, they can only learn so much. And then you have to freeze it, otherwise it's going to overlearn. There's all these terms for it, but it falls apart, basically. And so somehow babies learn in stages and build on what they've learned before without forgetting what they learned previously. Right. That's something, and we do it in adults, that's something that no artificial system can do right now. That's actually on a project that's trying to figure out. But your robots remembered the previous, right? Yeah, but my robots remembered it over trials that lasted a few days. Okay. Yeah. We're talking, we, we learn things over decades. Right. Yeah. So, so that seems to bridge right into a question that Burton has been asking and, and talking about, which is addressed beautifully in, in the book, is cortex the organ of mind? We're talking about, 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 about these uh, op op opportunities and implications. And I know Mark actually wanted to jump in, and uh, uh, you're welcome to. It was, it's related to slightly different. No, no problem, and then we're going okay. to. Okay, because like. And we're getting close to the end of the talk, and we're going to have some more uh, wines and dessert and coffee afterwards in the, in the gallery. Uh, thank you for sticking it out with us. You're, you're wonderful. And I guess it's a question for Jeff, which is, you know, now these ideas of this idea of iteration and, and, and artificial intelligence is quite popular. And I wonder, you know, because it seems like since we are in La Jolla and um, the, the home of the Neurosciences Institute, could you put that in his, like, so DARPA would say that the first wave of AI was driven by um, game theory. The second wave was driven by um, probability theory, and the third wave by iteration. And we're all familiar now by reading about AlphaGo and the deep mind idea. But then I've, over the last uh, two years, I've been having great meetings with George Rieke, who did a lot of work with the Neuroscience Institute. And we've been talking about like an early paper in 1988 uh, called Real Minds and Artificial Intelligence, where this iterative model that seems contemporary now was well-defined. Um, so can you put this idea in terms of the Neuroscience Institute in context? Because iteration now is something that we all hear about all the time. So what do you mean exactly by iteration then? I can... 
Well, I guess this idea of like like the the way, if I understand correctly, because I'm not a computer scientist and not even a scientist and not even a you know whatever, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know th this idea, I can do that, which I can't. Yeah. All right. So so then no, but it's this idea of like what made that big leap from Deep Blue playing Gary Kasparov to AlphaGo playing you know Go, Lisa you know like so so what happened there and and then also. Was that you know? Is it, am I just delusional, or was the, were those delusional. ideas <laughs> <Okay>. possible, <laughs> or were those ideas yeah. thought about by people? Okay, well that's yeah, for those, sure. Those, oh, were those ideas thought about by those those iterative ideas thought about in the Darwin Robot Project at NSI? Um, actually, no, because what's going on now was thought about around the same time by by people who are doing artificial neural networks, and there are some pioneers in it. Um, but they didn't have enough data and they didn't have good enough computers. So what's happening now is we have huge data sets and we have large enough computers to mm. chunk through this and we can you know, decide uh, this is a cat and this is a dog and those kind of things and also play a really mean game of chess or Go uh, or the other benchmark is Atari games of all things. Um, but uh, what Edelman was doing and maybe Steve Grossberg and a few other people, they were still looking at how the brain does it, which is very different. And uh, they both stuck with it through some dark years where there was really no funding for it and uh, made a huge amount of progress. And now I think it's, there's a bunch of buzz by, in the artificial intelligence community with what's going on now, which is really an old idea, but they're hitting a wall and they're starting to realize how brittle it is. And it's coming back to they're asking neuroscientists to get involved. Because actually, I'm on a DARPA project where the, mm. the manager said, we really need to uh, look at biology. And so I, I would swore I'd never do deep neural networks, but I, I did because they actually wanted to look at how maybe some of the biological solutions to that. Mm. So I think this is coming back in vogue. And, and it was good that people like Gerald Edelman, Steve Grossberg, and I'm probably forgetting a few others stuck with it through those years where it was really hard to get funding and hard to, you know, you're speaking to the wind for a long time.